Welcome to the OA Light a Candle Meeting Podcast. Visit our website at oalaig.org where you'll find several speaker feeds with over 400 speaker files, forms for ordering CDs for these speakers, and a place to donate to keep this special service active. I would now like to introduce our speaker for tonight, Jeff. Hi, everybody. My name is Jill. I'm a compulsive overeater and a 100-pounder. What an order. I can't go through with it. And I want to say, you know, as terrified as I am, and it's mostly because I know everybody in the room, it scares me so much and makes me really vulnerable. As terrified as I am, I also feel a sense of calmness and peace. And um, I know that's not me. And um, while I was being introduced to the podium, I said, all right, God, you and me, you and me. Here we go. So um, let's see. Uh, Jill, compulsive reader, 100-pounder. I'll just start off with, um, with that and share a little bit. To qualify, I brought my big book, which you see has plenty uh, of notes and highlights and this and that. Um, and then I'll go into um, my story. And that's all I got is my story. You know, I was, there are a lot of people who have heard me share in the past. And the beauty is, is that I don't have any new tricks today. And I don't have to stand up here and tap dance and get you all to like me. Um, I don't have to say the perfect words in the right order and have it be chronological, alphabetically correct. You know, it, I, I just have to tell my story. And my responsibility is just to show up and tell my story and, and, and help others. And that being said, um, my sponsor, Holland, reminded me of that this week and asked that I read Helping with Others or Working with Others in the book, big book today, which I did, and which was very helpful to get me a little grounded. Um, so I'll start a little bit with um, just uh, my abstinence and then go into my story. So uh, I came in, so I have 10 years of abstinence with God's grace in December. And what that means for me is my absence is three meals a day. I don't have any snacks during the day or snack foods. I had a moment of clarity and honesty early on when working with my sponsor and knew for me that if I, if I allowed snacks into my day, I can turn a snack into a meal in a second. So I just, you know, I'm a big believer. If it's not an option, it's not a problem. So I don't have snacks during the day. I don't have snack foods. My absence, three meals a day, life in between, no sugar, um, no what I call form foods. Form foods for me is anything that looks like something, sugar-free stuff, uh, protein bars look like other things to me. And my head says, you know, protein bar must be packed with protein. Go ahead and eat to have 18 of them. That's what my head says. Um, and, then, um, and then I have red, yellow, and green food list that supports my absence. Red is foods that I don't eat. Yellow are foods that I'm not willing to put on my red list yet. <laughs> and green is pretty self-explanatory. Um, I came in these rooms at 327 pounds, maintaining about a 160-pound weight loss. And um, as the fellow said earlier, my weight loss is the most uninteresting part of my journey. So, um, you know, I'll just a little bit on what it was like. I want to thank a couple people too. First of all, congratulations to the chip takers and the newcomers. My pitch is especially for the newcomers today. Um, and I want to thank my sponsor, Holly, who picks up the phone and has picked up the phone for the, almost the last 10 years at 6.30 in the morning and tells me the truth about my disease. And I want to thank my, with my partner, Sherry, there she is, 
um, been in a partnership with her, her for almost eight years, and she reminds me that my attitude is my paintbrush of the day. So, almost on a daily basis. So, um, let's see, what it was like. You know, it was helpful for me early on when my sponsor suggested that I write kind of like a life history of my food and, and the emotions involved. And, and what that brought forth for me is it really kind of connected the dots to my life and the feelings and the emotions and really kind of why I ate. So in doing that food history, um, it, it, it came about that I had been compulsively overeating since I was four. My first series of food crimes were when I was four years old, I broke into the neighbor's house um, after Halloween. Many of you have heard this sad story, and um, still the same sad story. Broke into the neighbor's house when I was four years old in a window that was open and sold all of their Halloween candy, and I buried it in a shoebox in my backyard. <laughs> and then I went a little bit further and started a tab with a helmsman who, who, who who some of you might know is like the ice cream man, but he sells pastries. And unbeknownst to my mother, I started a tab. Like, who does that at four years old? Starts a tab with a tab. <laughs> so, um, yeah, so two things happened when I was about 12, and this is really where the, where the rubber hit, for, hit the road for me in my compulsive overeating, is that two incidents happened. I was molested, and in the same year, my parents were divorced, and I took on all of that hatred, self-loathing, I'm unlovable, um, all of that incomprehensible demoralization I took on. And everything I did from then on validated what I really thought about myself. You know, and when I, when I, I'm going to fast forward just a little bit because it's so important for me to say this. When I started working the steps, you know, I really started thinking about what the payoff was for me of being 327 pounds. And the payoff for me was it validated, again, everything I thought about myself. I was unworthy, unlovable, um, and unworthy of joy in my life. And that 327 pounds was like a, I wore my guilt and I wore my shame physically. And that 327 pounds kept me from you, kept me from the sunlight of the spirit. And that's what the payoff was for me. You know, and I had this idea that, you know, I wanted to be invisible. But the ironic part of that is who doesn't notice a woman, a 327-pound woman coming into the room? You know, that's how, that's how distorted my, my thinking is. So, you know, I could go on and on and on, and I will a little bit about, to tell you what it was like at 327 pounds. I want to tell you a little bit about what that was like, but, you know, I'm working on a big book with my sponsor right now, and what I'm doing is, I've gone through all 12 steps, and right now we're currently going a page at a time through the big book. And nothing, it's the paragraph I'm about to read, it says it so well than, than, any, than any analogy or, or words that I could think of. So I'm going to read verbatim out of the big book, and it's my chance, the, cha the chapter that's called My Chance to Live, and it's on page 310. All right. It says, drinking released me from the suffocating fear, the feelings of inadequacy, the nagging voices at the back of my head that told me I would never measure up. All of those, all of those things melted away when I drank. The bottle was my friend, my companion, a portable vacation. 
Whenever life was too intense, alcohol would take the edge off or obliterate the problem altogether for a time. And when I read that paragraph, you know, I've, I've been through the OA 12 and 12, the AA 12 and 12, like I said, through the 12 steps, but I, when I saw this simple paragraph, it meant everything to me. You know, so some of the incom- incomprehensible demoralization at 327 pounds, just to, just to hopefully be relatable to some newcomers that are in, in the room. Um, let's see, in school I was called Jumbo Jill. Um, I was never picked for dances in school, sports in school, um, never went to the football games in school, was never asked. And as my life progressed, I uh, broke the frame of my bed. I was on a number of different kinds of um, high blood pressure medication, um, and my blood pressure was still high with that medication. I also had severe acid reflux, and many times, during, even though I was on medication for that, Many times during the night, I would wake up gasping for air because the acid went in my airway. And, you know, as I was gasping for air, I said to myself, I'm never going to compulsively overeat again. I'm never going to have pizza for breakfast again. You know, but, you know, as the big book talks about, nothing was ever different. I also want to say, too, before I forget, because it's so important to me, that, you know, they talk about this disease being a three-legged stool, emotionally, physically, and spiritual. For me, my spiritual recovery has to be the biggest part of the equation. If I don't have a spiritual program, if I don't have a connectedness with God, you can forget about any kind of spiritual, I'm sorry, you can forget about any kind of physical, emotional recovery. And often when I hear others relapse, for me, my thought is, you know, that's that's, that's an opportunity for me to enlarge my spiritual growth. So... I had, back again to what it was like, I gained 60 pounds when I was uh, pregnant. I had to have a cesarean because of my weight gain. And um, on and on and on and on it went to 327 pounds. And I can't even tell you how I got to that weight. I was so disconnected from my, from my feelings. I had no idea that five pieces for breakfast would equal X amount of weight. I had no idea. Um, so let's see. What happened? What happened was well, a little bit more about what it was like, just because, you know, I want to talk about the cunning, baffling, and powerfulness of my disease. Uh, when I was, I don't know, 30-something, I uh, started getting curious about my sexuality, and there was this gay girl at work. Many of you have heard this story, to my horror. I'll just say it again. <laughs> um, there was this gay girl at work, and I started getting really curious about my sexuality. And I started thinking about, you know, what that would mean. And I, and I said to her one day, I said, you know, can I ask you a question? And she said, yeah, you can ask me anything. And I said, what kind of food do you guys eat? <laughs> That's all I wanted to know. You know, I didn't have a thought of what that might mean to my husband or how that would affect other people in my life or what that change might mean to my son. The only thing I cared about was what food you ate, you know, and what you were going to have for lunch. You know, that's all I cared about. Um, so I'm going to read a little bit more from the big book. I want to say, too, to segue to this, I have thoughts that come in the form of really good ideas. And that being said, that reminds me of my suddenly story, and my friend Lucy has heard my snack story more than once, but it's always good for a good laugh 
And um, because, you know, I can laugh at my disease today and the absurdity of it. So I'm going to read a little bit about, um, more about alcoholism from the big book, page 36. And he's talking about, the author is talking about an experience he had. He's been sober, and now he's talking about an experience he has. And he starts with, the, in this, him talking about this, it starts with the word suddenly. And for me, if I can start a sentence with suddenly, it's a problem for me. Suddenly there's cheese on my salad. Suddenly I'm going back for a second. You know, suddenly is a problem. Okay. <laughs> suddenly, the thought crossed my mind that if I were to put an ounce of whiskey in my milk, it couldn't hurt me on a full stomach. I ordered a whiskey and poured it into the milk. I vaguely sensed I was not being any too smart, but felt reassured as I was taking the whiskey on a full stomach. The experiment went so well that I ordered another whiskey and poured it into more milk. That didn't seem to bother me, so I tried another. And then it goes on to say, Thus started one more journey to the asylum for Jim. Here was the threat of commitment, the loss of family and position, to say nothing of that intense mental and physical suffering which drinking always caused him. He had much knowledge about himself as an alcoholic, yet all reasons for not drinking were easily pushed aside in favor of the foolish idea that he could take whiskey if he, if he only mixed it with, with milk. Um, goes on to say, insanely trivial excuse for taking the first drink. Our sound reasoning failed to hold us in check. The sane idea, the insane idea won out. Next day, we would ask ourselves in all earnestness and sincerity, how could it have happened? Our behavior is as absurd and incomprehensible with respect to the first drink as that of an individual with a, with a passion, say, for jaywalking. All right. So, again, if I can start the word, a sentence with the word suddenly, it's, it's in, in hindsight, it's always problematic for me. So I'm going to tell you what happened for me in this experience of suddenly and whisking milk in my, in my absence. Um, early on in my absence, but nonetheless in my absence, I was probably about, I don't know, maybe about three, four years absent. So at that time I was working at a job, which I did a lot of traveling in, and it afforded me, since I did a lot of traveling, it afforded me to stay at some really fancy hotels and the concierge level. So one night in particular, I was at this hotel, right next door to the concierge level. <clears throat> Suddenly I have a thought that says, I need some bottled water. Well, you have bottled water in your room, but the bottled water in the concierge level is much better. This is, you, suddenly, this is what's happening. So I go to the concierge level, and I get that, which is next door, and I get the bottled water, and they have snacks in there. Just a beautiful spread of snacks. All my favorites, and there's nobody in there. There's just me. Just a minute, okay. And, um... And I'm looking at the snacks, and I'm thinking about my partner who doesn't have a job and who I don't want to have to be forlorn and miserable and be hungry, so she needs the snacks. Poor <laughs> <laughs> thing. So I don't want her wandering in the alleys looking for food. So, okay, I'll just take a couple snacks, a couple handfuls of snacks. So I go back in my room, and I put them on the bed, and I'm looking at the snacks. Well, that's not enough. Well, not enough. She needs more than that. So I go back over to the concierge level, or the concierge, concierge lounge again right next door, grab a couple handfuls, put them on the bed, still not enough. Right? So then I go to the 
to the closet and I take out the dry cleaning bag that's the size of a pillowcase. And I think, well, I can't take the pillowcase in the concierge lounge because that's going to be really embarrassing and stupid. So I'm just going to go back and forth, and now I'm with armfuls of snacks. So much so that I put the security latch on the door because I can't be bothered with opening with the key card because I've got an because I've got you know an armful of snacks. So I'm back and forth with an armful of snacks, and I put them in this pillowcase. So the next day. I put the snacks into my, my um, suitcase, and I'm all packed, and I'm on the shuttle to the airport, and I think, holy crap, what if I have an overweight, overweight bag now because of the 50 pounds of snacks that are in my bag? <laughs> I think, well, I'm just going to lie and write it off my expense report and say it's extra paperwork or something. Nobody will ever know. So then my snacks make the flight, and I get home, and I open the bag, and there are the snacks. Okay, so I go to a meeting, and I'm sitting in the front row, which is what I usually do. I sit in the front row, and I'm so irritated. I hate everybody in there, the speaker, blah, 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 judging everybody, judging their abstinence, and don't they know. Thought intuitive voice says to me, Jill, how much time have you spent thinking about those snacks today? I raise my hand, I get up, and I share the story just as I share it. Fellow comes up to me afterwards and says, Jill, do you think you owe... Yeah, my time. Okay. Jill, do you think you owe the hotel an amount for stealing their snacks? I had about popped off, but intuitive voice comes out and says, you may be right. Let me think about that. That's not me talking. I wanted to punch him in the face. So I went home, and my... You know, I had the snacks, and I said, I know I'm going to put the snacks in with my earthquake food. <laughs> so my sponsor calls my sponsor, and she says, no, you're not going to put them in the earthquake food. And by the way, if there is an earthquake, you're still abstinent. <laughs> Take the snacks and get them out of your house, and you owe the hotel an amends for stealing their snacks, which I did make an amends for taking more than my share of snacks. I wrote a check to the manager. Here you go. You know, and that's the stuff that I have to do today. That's the stuff that keeps me abstinent. Um, so I want to talk about what my life is like today. I know I just have, I don't know, like eight minutes or something, so I'm kind of crazy kind of tell you what it's like today. My life is completely, completely different than I was than, than 10 years ago. Um, I left a job. Well, I didn't leave, quite frankly. I was fired. But I was fired from a job that no longer serves me. And a little bit of history about that is I was in this job for 15 years, and when I started that job, I loved that job, and it fit at 327 pounds. And the more my spiritual path grew, the different I became, that job no longer fit me, and I was miserable there. I didn't feel like I had a purpose. I hated what I did. I didn't like everybody there. I, I didn't have a good relationship with my boss, and I was certain it was all his fault. And, you know, and I remember being in a real spiritual crisis at that time and talking to my sponsor about, you know, I need a spiritual guru, guru, I need a therapist, I need some outside help on this. And she said, you can certainly get that and do that, or you can work the steps. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, I say. And this is after, what, 10 years. Oh, yeah, I can work the steps. So, you know, I was in talking, you know, complaining about my boss in a meeting, and a fellow said to me, Jill, you seem really angry at your boss when you do a four-step. Again, my head is about to pop off my shoulders, because I have no part in that. I have no part in his behavior. 
So I write that fourth step, and it came and it came to light that yes, I did have a part, and my part was that I had given him that I had given him all power. I had made him my God, and it really took a took some work for me to really understand as the big book talks about. God is my employer today. God is my principal. God is my director. And when I really understood what step three was, which is about trust, and if I break trust down, try really understanding step three. And that's, for me, where the rubber meets the road, step three. Try really understanding what, what step three is, Joe. And when I, when, I came to, when I came to a real understanding about that, no joke, I was fired in that week. And I really do believe that, do believe that for me, I had to stay there in that job until I got the lesson, until that was understood. So I went to live, I got a great severance, and I went to live in Paris for a month, and um, came back, and I have a job today that I absolutely love and adore. Do I make much money? No. But I'm in absolute, absolute joy every second that I'm there, and I get to, I get to be of service to others. Um, my, um, my, um, relationship with my son has changed since I made a nine step amends to him. I have five grandchildren that I love and um, you call me Grandma Joe, which always brings me joy. And um, you know, I just have a completely, completely different life today. And a little bit about Paris because it's such a special place for me and um, the first time I went there, I don't know, was five years or so ago. And I remember being in Saint Chapelle which is a church that is full of stained glass, and I was there for a beautiful concert in the evening. And I remember at the beginning of the concert, my partner may remember this, as I just sat there and sobbed, and I sobbed, and I sobbed, and I sobbed. And, and you know, how did I get here, God? How did I get in this beautiful church at a, at a, at a normal body weight? I'm the girl that was hiding pizza boxes in the alley in somebody else's trash. How did I end up here? How did I get here? And being full of such joy and such grace, and at, at, at the grace of it all. And, and riding to Monet's garden on a bicycle, bicycle and having it not be about lunch, you know, and just being the joy of riding a bicycle. For the love of God, I would not be on a bicycle 327 pounds for sure. You know, I was, in full, of, I was full of such fear at that time. You know, and today I just show up and I went back to school and I was like 55 years old, and I went back to school, and I just did the same thing that I do in these meetings. I showed up early, I sat in the front row, I raised my hand, and I'm of service, and I live the traditions, and I live the steps. And um, I don't know what else to say other than I'm tremendously grateful um, for all of you, and um, thank you for asking me to share tonight. <laughs> The question was, how did my relationship with my higher power evolve through my journey? Um, early on, and it's kind of a long story, I'll just kind of give it to you in a nutshell. Early on, I was um, hiking up in Lake Tahoe when I had broke my ankle, and I had a four-speed, and I couldn't drive the car to the hospital, and there was a worker that was um, working up at the retreat at the resort, getting it ready for summer, and he came over in this big blue truck, and he picked me up, scooped me up, and he took me to the hospital, and I got, take, I got taken care of. So for a long time, for me, my higher power was that big blue truck. Somebody that scooped me up, cared for me, 
showed up when I most needed them, no coincidence. And um, for a long time, again, my higher power was my blue truck, and it's, and it's evolved to nature, to the ocean, to people. And, I, and I, what I really, really try to do is keep myself humble, and I share a story about the big book and knowing as much as this blank page, you know, and that keeps me humble during the day. And that allows me to show up for God's teaching and the lessons of the day, and that inherently and organically it enlarges my spiritual growth. Anybody else? Is that it? One minute? Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. And, and specifically with step three, that means everything to me. Um, God is all or nothing with my choice to be. And often during the day, I'll say out loud to myself, interesting choice, Jill. You know, interesting choice. Where is God in that interesting choice? All or nothing. I'm either fear-based or I'm faith-based. For me, there's, there's nothing in between, you know. And what, and what am I in fear about? And where is God in, and where is God in that spot? You know, so yeah, interesting choice, too. <laughs> <laughs> All right, thank you.